You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Matthew, Hefe, Zuman, Black Tip, Long John Sterling, Bull, Vertigon, Billy Bones, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do so is at patreon.com slash piratehistorypodcast. Hello, welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt, thank you for listening. On Saturday, the 17th of April, 1680, Captains Bartholomew Sharp, Richard Sawkins, John Coxon, Peter Harris, Edmund Cook, and John Cook fitted their canoes with powder, shot, water, and what provisions they could carry, and headed downriver from Santa Maria. Last time, we discussed their departure and the perilous journey of Basil Ringrose. Now, the two main factors in Ringrose's tumultuous journey were his canoe, first of all, which was poorly made and too heavy, and their lack of a Kuna guide. But the rest of the pirates, including all of the captains, as well as William Dampier and Lionel Wafer, they fared far better. Their canoes were much more maneuverable and far less cumbersome, they were able to make it downriver much faster than Ringrose, and their guides ensured that they didn't get turned around or take any false routes, both of which Ringrose did. Most importantly, though, they moved fast enough, and at the right time, to avoid the tide coming in and the young flood. In two days of relatively easy rowing, these pirates made it to the Gulf of San Miguel, Bartholomew Sharp named it the Bay of St. George, which was erroneous, but for reasons that will soon become clear. Once in the gulf, the pirates headed out to a little island off in the distance. It was safely removed from the mainland and any Spanish patrols they might encounter there, and it rose to a peak from which they could survey the ocean for miles around and see if any Spanish ships were headed in their direction. When they rode in close enough, they could clearly see a watchtower built atop the mountain, which probably also served as a lighthouse. This meant that there was a Spanish presence there, and any Spanish troops on the island would surely have seen them. They thought it better, though, not to flee, but rather to engage any Spaniards on the island, to keep them from betraying their location, and it was best to attack them on the land. So they made for the island, and found docks there, which were small and essentially empty, save for one small boat. It seemed that the island might be deserted. So the pirates grabbed their guns and they marched up the mountainside as quickly but as quietly as possible. They were watchful on this entire march for any sign of troops, any human habitation at all, tracks or trees cut down, but they found nothing. When they reached the crest of the mountain, there was only the watchtower. It was small and sturdy and relatively tall, but there was smoke coming from it, signs of life, but not of a full garrison. So a few men ventured inside and found there only an old man who was asleep. They put a knife to his throat and they woke him. As you might imagine, he was pretty frightened to find a handful of scruffy English pirates in his room, but he answered their questions in a broken English and was left unharmed. There were no other men on the island, only him, to tend the lighthouse for ships that were coming and going. It appeared that the English had found themselves a base of operations from which to scout for Spanish troops and even possibly to lure Spanish ships right to them. They didn't have long to wait either. That evening, as the sun was setting, a bark made landfall on the island. It was a small ship, but still in good shape and really lightly manned. So the pirates took two canoes, maybe with 20 or 25 men in them, and silently rowed to the boat under the cover of darkness. They rode in close to the bark and waited in their boats at the waterline, listening to the talk of the men on board. They figured out that the ship had disembarked a company of soldiers on the mainland and come here to this island to wait. It was manned by a skeleton crew, so the pirates, who were led by Captain Sharp, readied their guns and drew their cutlasses, and then they climbed overboard to claim the ship. 
The Spanish surrendered naturally, in the face of two dozen pirates appearing suddenly, brandishing pistols and steel. So Sharp took command of the vessel and brought with him his most trusted inner circle. Captain Cook, Edmund Cook, who came on as his second in command, brought his most favored men as well, but there was still plenty of room on board the bark, so the crews assembled there on the island agreed that those men in the least seaworthy canoes should come aboard. I wonder what those arguments sounded like, every man arguing that his was the worst canoe and he deserved to be on the ship, but in the end the ship carried 137 men. The poorest, probably seven or eight canoes, were left tied to the dock and abandoned. The pirates were growing a bit worried, though. The only crew who hadn't made landfall was that of Basil Ringrose. Earlier in the day, their Kuna guides had gone out to find them and bring them in, but they hadn't returned either. So come dawn, when Basil Ringrose and the Kuna still weren't back, Sharp took his new ship out to sea. He hoped to find Ringrose and his men, but... Barring that, there was always the possibility of finding another Spanish ship. This is episode 42, The Extremist Hazard of Fire and Sword. Now I want you all to know that for our 42nd episode, I racked my brain for a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy pun for the title. Somehow... Life, the universe, and everything just doesn't fit thematically here. If one of you, who is far more clever than I am, comes up with one, feel free to share it and shame me completely. Now, we already know that Captain Sharp finds Basil Ringrose early in the day. When they were reunited, Ringrose shared his fantastical and, frankly, unbelievable tale of woe and misery, all of it capped off by that capture at the hands of the Spanish and sudden release for being just such a nice guy, and I imagined that Ringrose was telling this story to anyone who would listen. But when the other buccaneers shared their story, of their experience over the last few days, well, it became pretty quickly apparent that all was not well among their fleet. Their commander-in-chief, their admiral, Captain John Coxon, was ruffling feathers. He'd been second-guessing the voyage every step of the way. He said often and loudly that he thought Panama was a bad plan. They didn't have enough men, he said, or enough arms, or enough ships. He thought it would be best to turn east and travel down the coast of the southern continent. They could supply, find ships, and probably even other settlements rich with gold. Of course, even as admiral, he wasn't totally in command. He couldn't order the pirates to change their destination. This crew, like all pirate vessels, were democratic, and they chose collectively where and when to strike. Now, Coxon was urging them to move on, but virtually no one was listening. The men, on the other hand, were openly mocking their commander. Panama was the plan. They might move on afterward, but they'd be damned if Coxon turned them away from Panama. And Coxon, who was supposedly their leader, hadn't even taken that bark, but he was piloting a piragua. He let Sharp take the ship, and he hadn't really joined in on taking the island either. But after they did, he insisted that they take that ship and they go. The men were naming him a coward. But after the crews were reunited, Basil Ringrose and William Dampier abandoned their respective canoes and upgraded to a new one. It appears that they were becoming friends on the voyage, being one of only a few educated men, and squarely both in the camp that was opposed to Captain Coxon. Ringrose wrote, quote, Morning being come, I changed my canoe and embarked myself on another, which, though it was something lesser than the former, yet was furnished with better company. End quote. Meanwhile, Captain Peter Harris was about his own business. They had abandoned the worst five or six canoes in favor of the bark already, but that left 220 men or so still relegated to the canoes. So Harris went out at dawn and found himself another vessel. His men boarded her, and despite a fierce flash of defense, they took the vessel with no casualties. It was smaller than Sharp's bark and only held about 30 men, but it let them abandon two or three more canoes. So, with Sharp off sailing to find Ringrose and Harris out searching for his own ship, the fleet had become separated. The winds turned contrary halfway through the day, and the two groups were blown away from each other. The group carrying Ringrose and Sharp and Dampier made for nearby land and made camp and slept till morning. 
At dawn they set out for the rendezvous point, decided upon by all of the men, the island of Chipio. Now the other group, with Captain Harris, Richard Sawkins, John Coxon, they set course for the rendezvous as well. En route, they spied another set of sails, and this time Captain Coxon made for her, but his attempt at boarding was sloppy, and his men were repelled. One man, a man named Mr. Bull, was killed, and two others were wounded pretty severely. The ship, after that, caught a favorable wind and got away. This was a serious problem. Not only had Coxon gotten a man killed, that was to be expected sometimes, but he'd failed to take a ship at sea. That ship was filled with Spaniards and was currently sailing at speed back to Panama. So due to Coxon's sheer incompetence as a commander and failure at the most basic of piracy, they'd lost a man, they'd lost a ship, and now they'd lost the element of surprise. Their entire plan hinged upon surprising the Spanish at Panama, and now, well, that was ruined. Now that small fleet of Coxon and Sawkins and Harris made landfall at Chapillo at about 2 p.m. and waited on Captain Sharp. The men went searching for water and found what appeared to be a small settlement of Cameroons, or perhaps it was just a few escaped slaves and mulattoes. Now I'd like to address this for just a moment. I understand that mulatto isn't the most sensitive term, and I intend no offense, but I am choosing to use it here. It's a term that's specifically applicable to the Spanish. It is, after all, a Spanish word, though it has an Arabic root. That root in Arabic means biracial, and it was originally used by the Moors in Iberia to reference the descendants of Iberian men and women that practiced Islam. It was to them originally an inclusive term, denoting Iberians joining their society. Now, by the late 17th century in the Spanish New World, we're talking about, and let's be honest here, children born to an African mother who was a slave and a Spanish father who was a master. And there it did pick up negative connotations that still linger today. Largely that's due to what they call the mulatto myth, which is a belief that people of mixed racial heritage will always be outsiders in their communities. But in this case of the 17th century Spanish New World, that is a literal truth. It was a highly regimented and racially divided world. And these mulattoes were men and women without a nation. They were free when it came to slavery, but they were not equal citizens of the white Spanish. They were relegated to jobs in brothels or in the army, or if their father was particularly kind, they might be allowed to stay in his home as a bastard. You couldn't even really call them second-class citizens as they weren't technically citizens of the Spanish Empire. They didn't have equal protection under the law. They were an embarrassment to the Spanish crown in that noble Spanish men would sully their blood with African women so their children were just swept under the rug and ignored. It was an unpleasant and often terrible existence, and many of them ran away to escape that life. So while I don't feel that mulatto is an appropriate term for anyone of biracial or mixed racial heritage, I do think in this case it is the most applicable terminology. However, at that island, the English captured those runaway slaves they found, amounting to about 14 people. Now this might seem cruel, especially considering the English believed themselves to be less racially discriminatory, but I suspect that at this point it was merely due diligence. It was foolish, tactically speaking, to leave 14 people free that might cause mischief in your camp, or even perhaps steal one of your canoes, or otherwise perhaps run away and warn the Spanish of your whereabouts. So after taking the prisoners, the pirates took their food, which amounted to some water, some wine, some plantains, and two fat hogs. Then they found that the Cameroons had another piragua, which they assimilated into their fleet. But before long, the rest of the fleet arrived at Chepillo. As soon as they arrived, it was clear they had problems to solve. They had decisions that needed making, and they had potential fires to quell. The men were in an uproar. 
You can see why, too. Coxon had been attempting to steer them away from Panama, and he had finally managed to ruin their plan and possibly destroy their whole operation. They were jeering at Coxon and his men. They were openly mocking their commander, and they were making threats, too. It was close to becoming a vicious and violent situation. So Bartholomew Sharp and Richard Sawkins conferred. Coxon was present, but he was in disgrace. The two cooks, as well as Harris, and probably even Dampier and Ringrose, would have been present as well, along with all of the top officers on the ships and even the quartermasters. At this point, Sawkins and Sharp, though, were the two ranking captains that still commanded enough respect and carried enough authority to hold the expedition together. You see, at this moment, everything was in danger of falling apart. If the men decided they were done with Coxon, it would likely turn into a fight between Coxon and his 70 men and virtually everyone else. Now, Sawkins might have been forced to side with Coxon due to their long history and friendship. Sharp, though, would have been forced into a position of command of the opposing side. This would have turned into a bloody fight and deadly on both sides. Now, Still, Coxon would have had the lesser numbers, but even if they had won, Sharp didn't have enough men with him to continue the voyage. The fleet would have fractured and split up into half a dozen smaller crews that would have spent their days pirating around the southern ocean, and eventually they would have been snatched up by Spanish patrols. All 300 men of this expedition would have wound up dead. So Sharp and Sawkins, as kind of the leaders of their two burgeoning factions, well, they sat in council with all of the other captains and all of the other best and brightest, and they led. But more importantly, they were seen leading. They were seen solving problems. They were seen devising a plan, and they were seen holding the fleet together. Now, they knew that after that ship had escaped Coxon's hands... Panama was expecting them now. If they were to have any hope of success in taking the city, they had to move quickly. But in order to do that, they had some business to attend to. Perhaps most pressing there were their prisoners. They had a few Spaniards left from Santa Maria. They had the old man from the lighthouse. They had the crews of those two Spanish barks. And they had those 14 Cameroons that they had just taken. They had to figure out what they were going to do with them. So Ringrose writes, quote, It was judged convenient by our commanders for certain reasons, which I could not dive into, to rid their hands of the prisoners which we had taken. And hereupon orders were given unto our Indians, who knew they would perform them very willingly, to fight, or rather, to murder and slay the said prisoners upon the shore. This they instantly went about to do, being glad of this opportunity to revenge their hatred against their enemies, though in cold blood. But the prisoners, although they had no arms wherewith to defend themselves, forced their way through these barbarous Indians in spite of their lances, bows, and arrows, and got into the woods of the island. End quote. Now, perhaps this is as cold-blooded as it sounds. It's certainly mysterious, for reasons I could not dive into. However, they escaped somehow. Certainly, though, having them killed made tactical sense. The prisoners served little purpose now. Panama was already prepared to fight. Stealth was out of the question, so the prisoners' promise of leading the pirates into the city was right out. As was their value as hostages. That was virtually erased. They'd serve no purpose, and they'd be a major liability in a battle. So perhaps this story is true. Perhaps they ordered the Indians to kill their prisoners and somehow the prisoners escaped. Or perhaps the English just slit their throats and threw them overboard. Once the prisoners were dealt with, though, they had a second major problem. They were severely lacking in victuals, which could prove as deadly as any Spanish attack. So they sent off their two new ships, the two barks they had taken the last two days, to collect food and water. Now, they put these under command of Captain Sharp and crewed both of the ships. You see, these barks were not particularly well-armed, not enough to be of any use in a battle, and considering the sudden need they had for haste, they didn't have time to arm these ships properly. The barks would have been too slow. 
to fit their needs. They needed speed and mobility to take Panama. So Sawkins and the others decided that Panama could still be taken if they moved quickly enough. So Richard Sawkins, John Coxon, Peter Harris, John Cook, William Dampier, Lionel Wafer, and Basil Ringrose prepared to move. Their fleet, which consisted of two piraguas carrying about 30 men each and a host of canoes carrying between 12 and 20 men each, set out for Panama less than two hours after arriving at the rendezvous. They rode hard, and at dawn on Friday the 23rd, the city of Panama came into view. Now, just off the coast of Panama, there lies a few small islands known today as the Causeway Islands. During World War II, they were fortified with gunboats and artillery emplacements and fortifications. They were there to serve as a defense against any Axis incursions from South America. Now, the Nazis never made a move on them, but they were still substantial defenses. All the way back in 1680, they served important purposes as well. The two largest islands in the island chain were called collectively Perico. Mostly, they were a port for the treasure ships arriving from South America. You see, the Spanish hadn't had a real threat arrive by sea since... Well, I was going to say since Francis Drake, but his ship, the Golden Hind, never really attacked Panama. He did kind of menace the shipping in the region, but he never proved a threat to Panama itself. There were perhaps Portuguese engagements much earlier on, but really they had never encountered a real threat by sea from this side of the Isthmus. Regardless, though, the Panamanian Navy was still there, and it was still prepared to defend their city should any attack by sea arrive. In the harbor at Perico, between those two largest islands, there were eight ships awaiting the pirates. Five of these were large, powerful ships of the line that were clearly intended for the defense of Panama. Now, they lay at anchor, but they were positioned to create a wall of fire in defense of the city should any enemy ships approach. Now, the other three ships were a bit smaller and patrolling the harbor. They were what the Spanish called the Barcos de Armadilla. These were small Spanish men-of-war, or galleons, which were heavy with guns and soldiers, but still small enough to be mobile. The Armadilla was a small strategic fleet that was intended to sortie out from the line and meet the enemy. Now, the word Armadilla means small armored one and is the basis for the name of the Armadillo. So I like to picture this little fleet as kind of short and stout and heavily armored and crazy fierce like an Armadillo. But those three, the Barcos de la Armadilla, changed their course as soon as they saw the pirates to meet them. Captain Sharp, who wasn't even there that day, he was off collecting water, chose to write himself into the battle nonetheless. He wrote of the men, as the Spanish sailed to meet them, quote, We made a resolution. Rather than drown in the sea or beg quarter of the Spaniard whom we were used to conquer, to run the extremist hazard of fire and sword. End quote. They were prepared to fight. They were prepared to die. They were prepared to do battle until the bitter end, rather than flee or be sunk or, God forbid, to surrender. According to Ringrose, the Spanish had equally harsh orders. Quote, the commanders had strict orders given them, and their resolution was to give quarter to none of the pirates or buccaneers. But such bloody commands as these seldom or never do happen to prosper. End quote. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Now, April 23rd, the day the pirates arrived at Panama, is a special day for the English. It's the feast day of St. George, which the English took very seriously in 1680, and today still some do. You see, St. George is the patron saint of England. He's a symbol of military might and honor and heroics and chivalry and all of the great medieval virtues, and he was a martyr. His tale, as recorded in the medieval text The Golden Legend, is impressive, and if you don't know it, I'd like to share it with you. Georgius was a soldier in the Roman legion serving under Emperor Diocletian in Libya. A town in the region, Salinas, was menaced by a dragon. The dragon lived in a nearby lake and bore plague. His breath poisoned the countryside for miles around, and the only way Salinas was spared was through sacrifice to the dragon. They offered him goats and lambs, but that didn't satisfy the dragon's hunger. He demanded the village's children. So they began to choose which children to sacrifice by lot. One by one, children were fed to the beast. Eventually, the king's daughter was chosen, and the king tried to have her removed from the lot. He begged and he pleaded that she be spared. He offered up half his wealth if only they would choose someone else. But the daughter, she refused, and she went to go meet her fate willingly. Georges happened by the lake one day, and he spied the girl there. He inquired into her well-being, as she was alone and so far from town, and as to her safety. She told him that all was as it should be, and she tried to send him away. That is a perfect example of medieval virtue, a young woman doing her duty in service to all those around her, choosing to sacrifice herself for the good of others. And then the knight, or, you know, the legionnaire, does his perfect chivalric duty, and he totally ignores her. He makes the sign of the cross, he draws his sword, and he charges at the dragon. He slays the dragon, and the entire population of Salinas converts to Christianity, The king constructs a church to the Virgin Mary on the lake, and the waters of the lake forever cure all disease. The king offers the wealth that he had offered to his people to Georges, but Georges refuses it and instead insists that he gives it to the poor. Despite its roots in the Roman myth and the Eastern imperial tradition, this story is so English. Much like the ancient Anglo-Saxon tale of Beowulf, George slays the dragon, he saves the people, and eventually he dies in service to them. And very much like the Norman Arthurian legend, George is the embodiment of exactly what chivalry should be. Duty and service, bravery, honor. This story holds a place in the hearts of the British. It's been retold time and again for centuries, and it even graced British recruitment posters during the World Wars. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the religious faithfulness of those buccaneers off the coast of Panama in 1680. They likely weren't particularly devout. But St. George's Day was important to them as Englishmen, regardless of their standing in the religion. It was a part of the British identity. All of this was very much in their minds when they went to do battle with the Spanish. Not unlike St. George, they were charging in to do battle with a great beast, a beast that had poisoned the world with, you know, its Catholicism and all their Spanishness, but they were going to do battle against the beast on the lake it called home, and they were going to come out victorious. Now, I'm kind of making light of it, but these pirates were absolutely serious, and they were prepared to die for their convictions. Now, if you're an American, you might find some of this a little hard to understand, but imagine if the U.S. were conquered by a foreign power, and then if you and all of your friends and family joined together and marched to fight for your freedom on July 4th. Imagine the impact of that. Imagine the symbolic power that that day would hold. That's what the English had in their minds and their hearts as they went forth to do battle with the Spanish. And 
you know, treasure and stuff. So the three ships in the Armadillo were closing in on the buccaneers. The first ship, the Admiral of the Fleet, was commanded by Almirante Don Jacinto de Barahona, the High Admiral of the Panamanian Navy. The ship carried 86 Spanish regulars, who were Biscayners that were renowned for their bravery and their prowess in battle. Ringrose writes of them, quote, These were all volunteers who came designedly to show their valor, end quote. The second ship was crewed by 65 mulattoes under Don Diego de Carabaxal. These men of mixed ancestry were the backbone of the Spanish forces in the New World. It was one of the few careers that was open to them in which they might actually be able to advance and prosper. The pirates knew this, and they had fought alongside so many of them that they knew just how skilled and dangerous they were. The third ship was commanded by, according to Ringrose, quote, an old and stout Spaniard, a native of Andalusia in Spain named Don Francisco de Peralta, end quote. That ship carried a crew of 77 African slaves. Now that brought the total Spanish fighting force to 228 men, aboard three small but well-armed galleons. The total English force, according to Ringrose, numbered 68 pirates. The fact that one of the Spanish ships was crewed by slaves, men who were probably not trained warriors and who probably didn't want to be there, would have indicated something about the Spanish strength to the buccaneers, and perhaps they did notice it, but they didn't have much time to mull it over. Their canoes rowed hard to meet the oncoming Armadilla ships and outpaced the two piraguas in their fleet. Within minutes, they were within range of the nearest ship, the galleon of Don Diego de Carabaxal. The fleet of canoes was spread out, spread wide across the water to form a net for the oncoming ships. Now, the pirates rowed for the wind's eye to get upwind of the vessel. They were rowing against the wind. When they came in close enough to the ship, though, they actually rowed to the leeward of the ship, right in the ship's path. That way, they could stay out of her gun's line of fire and even avoid most of the small arms fire from the bow. Now, the two closest canoes to Don Diego's ship were the canoes of Captain Sawkins and of Basil Ringrose. The ship came so close that Ringrose was nearly struck, but Don Diego's ship was carried by the wind and was on course to pass right between the two pirate canoes. When she did, Don Diego called out, Disparar, and the guns fired off the broadside from both starboard and port. The guns were loaded with a small shot, and men in both canoes were hit. But not enough of them. The pirates, who were left standing, raised their muskets, what they called fusees, and they opened fire on the Spanish soldiers on deck. Their volley tore through the Spanish men, and they fell all across the deck. They fell from the helm, they fell from the rigging. When the ship passed by, the pirates rode to her windward, and the ship was sluggish to come about for another pass. So the pirate fleet came together. The piraguas and all the canoes joined up just as the admiral of the fleet under Almirante Don Jacinto came upon them. Now the admiral tried to tack about. He tried to avoid passing through his enemy. He didn't want to make the same mistake that Don Diego had, but the pirates concentrated their fire on the ship and one of the marksmen in them hit the helmsman. In his death, the helmsman fell and brought his ship into the wind. That laid her sails back. She was dead in the water. So the pirates rode up to her stern and they opened fire. Any man who tried to approach the helm was shot. All the sails on board the ship were rent by English fire. But the Spanish rallied and they returned fire on the English. They kept the pirates hunkered down in their canoes and kept them from being able to board. Now, meanwhile, across the water, Captain Sawkins had taken command of a piragua. His own canoe had been disabled in that volley from the Spanish. Now, Captain Coxon had the other piragua, while Harris was in one of the larger canoes. But that final Spanish vessel, that third ship, the slave ship under Don Francisco de Peralta, was rushing in. She was coming to relieve the admiral from the pirates firing on her. If she succeeded in this, the pirates would be caught between the two ships. The Spanish would have had the advantage of height with gunmen on both decks and the pirates would have been trapped. 
Sawkins, though, saw the ship making for the Admiral, and with a few canoes rode in to intercept her. The pirates surrounded his vessel, but Don Francisco was that old and stout Spaniard. He marched about the deck, bellowing out his commands. Whenever a man fell, he picked up the fallen man's musket, and he fired back on the pirates until one of his men came in to relieve him. The English were in awe of Don Francisco. He was a real old sea dog. He appeared wherever the fighting was fiercest. He barked out his commands, and he refused to let the English board his vessel. This ship was by far the worst fighting of the day, so far at least. Ringrose wrote that, quote, the dispute or fight was very hot, lying board on board together and both giving and receiving death unto each other as fast as they could charge, End quote. So the ship with the mulatto crew, the ship under Don Diego, that ship that was the first to encounter the pirates, had finally tacked about and was coming in to relieve the admiral. So Ringrose's canoe and a canoe under a man named Captain Springer disengaged from the fight with the Admiral to meet the oncoming ship. Again, it played out much like the previous engagement. The two canoes parted to let the ship pass between them. This time, though, the Spanish had far less crew to man the guns, so the pirates were able to suppress all the enemy fire. The pirates drew their cutlasses. They pulled their pistols out. They were preparing to board the ship. But then, a last surge of defense came from the Spanish on board. That gave her just enough room to slip away. The pirates attempted to give chase, but this ship had the wind and they couldn't keep up with her. Ringrose estimated, when he saw who was on deck, that maybe 11 men made it back to Panama on board that ship. That's out of the original crew of 77. The fighting continued, though. Sawkins had attempted a boarding of Don Francisco's slave ship, but he had been repulsed. They kept fighting there. At the other fight, the Admiral was in a dire situation, though. He watched Don Diego's ship limp away. He knew that they would be unable to help. And then he saw Don Francisco beat back wave after wave of pirates. He knew that they were caught in the same predicament as himself. Now, remember how they were fighting. They were firing muskets. These were inaccurate firearms. They never shot in anything resembling a straight line. The musket ball was always made to be small enough to fit into any mass-produced musket, so they always rattled around the barrel before it left the muzzle in sort of a straight line. They took time to load, too. That was the biggest problem. After every shot, the Spanish would have to find cover. They'd have to pull out a cartridge, rip it open with their teeth, pour a bit of gunpowder into the priming pan, close the priming pan, move the musket to have the muzzle facing them, pour the rest of the powder into the barrel, stick the cartridge down the barrel, pull out a ramrod, jam it down the barrel repeatedly, pull it back out, secure the ramrod, stand up, find a target, aim, and fire. Half the time, the musket misfired, and God help you if the powder got wet. Imagine doing all of that on board the deck of a ship. Now, imagine doing all of that in a canoe, with virtually no cover, so you're basically laying down in a boat trying to reload, with eight or ten other men in the canoe as well, and the Spanish musket shot was raining down on you. Needless to say, this was a tough fight. For both sides, really. But the Spanish definitely had the advantage. They had the height, they had the numbers, they had ships, but the pirates were better armed and they were better shots. And the pirates were relentless. The Spanish fought on doggedly for several hours. While they had men left standing to fight, they defended their ships and their home. You see, even if every man among them was killed, one ship had gotten away to warn Panama that they were losing. So every second that they lasted in this defense, they knew that more women and more children would have the chance to flee Panama. Remember, many of these men remembered what had happened when Henry Morgan had come to Panama. They were there, some of them no more than maybe 10 years old, but they were there when Henry Morgan had ransacked, defiled, and burned their city. So, despite the overwhelming odds, they fought on. And the English took note of that. This was a fight unlike any the Spanish had ever given them, and they came away admiring the courage and the valor of the Spanish. What 
amazed them, though, were the slaves aboard Don Francisco's ship. They were impressed at their courageousness and their valor, and I think they were surprised. Now, this might have been just plain old-fashioned racism, which we can never discount, but I think there was something more. Now, first of all, you have to imagine they might have been slightly surprised that slaves would fight as hard as these men, but they were defending their homes as well. Despite their lives enslaved, they had loved ones in Panama too. They had wives and children. Even living under that tyranny of slavery, they would have feared for their families against these English pirates. There is also a very real possibility that these Englishmen had never seen a person of African descent holding a gun. That was a new experience. They had only ever seen them in chains, enslaved, and this was something else altogether. On both sides, men fell. When they stood up to take a shot, more than a few pirates fell from their boats. Captain Harris was shot through the leg. The shot went through one leg, tearing muscle and bone, and then it entered his other leg. The pirates described the feeling of being forced to take cover in a small canoe as having armor made of eggshell. Of course, though, despite the valiant defense of the Spanish, they were doomed to fail this battle in the end. Of the two ships left, the admirals fell first. Basil Ringrose was there when the ship fell, and he wrote, quote, At that time we came so close under the stem of the admiral that we wedged up the rudder, and withal killed both the admiral himself and the chief pilot of his ship, so that now they were almost quite disabled and disheartened likewise, seeing what a bloody massacre we had made among them with our shot. End quote. Captain Sharp, who remember, wasn't even there that day, wrote about the engagement. He wrote, quote, After a sharp contest, still burning with our fusees, as many as durst peep over deck, we boarded one of them. End quote. When he says burning, I believe he means shooting upwards onto the deck, sort of like you would if you were hunting birds. But Captain Coxon was the man to board the ship of the Admiral, now, he carried Captain Harris on board with him to see that he had his wounds tended and gave orders that the wounded were to be brought to the ship. The men who could still fight after that engagement began to row over to the ship of Don Francisco de Peralta. The fight was still going hot over there, and the old and stout Spaniard had continued to deny the buccaneers. But then, the bay was rocked by an explosion. On board Don Francisco's ship, fire blossomed. Men were thrown overboard. Pirates were knocked from their canoes. Flaming debris came falling from the sky, and for a moment, after several hours of continuous fire, musket shot, cannon, all fell silent. Don Francisco pulled himself to his feet on board his ship. He was burned, and he was wounded, and he was wearied, but he looked around, and he surveyed the situation. He saw the men in the water, and he dove into the ocean to save them. Remember that these men were slaves. They were not there by choice. They were not volunteers, and they were not the white Spanish soldiers that Don Francisco would have been accustomed to fighting with. But despite all that, wounded as he was, he jumped into the water without a second thought to save their lives. The pirates braced for a renewed attack coming from the ship. They raised their guns and waited for men to rush forward and fire upon them, but none came, not from slave soldiers or the Spanish officers. So a few pirates rowed over to the ship and boarded her, but most of the pirates left set out to aid Don Francisco in his recovery of the men who had been blown overboard. There was no more fighting in the bay, but those five ships of the line still lay at anchor. They still blocked the pirates' path to Panama. However, it was clear that for now, the battle was ended. This was not an honorable defeat of one's enemies. This was a tragedy, regardless of who it happened to. Basil Ringrose was among the first to board the ship, and he wrote, quote, Indeed, such a miserable sight I never saw in my life. For not one man there was found, but was either killed, desperately wounded, or horribly burnt with powder. 
insomuch that their black skins were turned white in several places, the powder having torn it from their flesh and bones. Having compassionated their misery, I went afterwards on board the admiral to observe likewise the condition of his ship and men. Here I saw what did much astonish me, and will scarcely be believed by others than ourselves who saw it. There were found on board this ship but twenty-five men alive, whose number before the fight had been fourscore and six. So that threescore and one, out of so small a number, were destroyed in the battle. But what is more, of these twenty-five men, only eight were able to bear arms, all the rest being desperately wounded and, by their wounds, totally disabled to make any resistance or defend themselves. Their blood ran down the decks in whole streams, and scarce one place in the ship was found that was free from blood. End quote. After the battle to take the admiral's ship had ceased, the fighting to take the ship of Don Francisco intensified. The men on board were growing tired, the pirates in the boats were growing tired, men on both sides were wounded and dying, and things began to grow a bit sloppy. The explosion was, naturally, from a cask of gunpowder alighting in the ship's magazine. This is a terrible event that happened all too often on board ships in the Age of Sail. I would like to note the compassion, though, that both the pirates and the Spanish felt for all of the men they saw who had been so terribly wounded and killed, despite the color of their skin. That morning, before the battle... The English had seen the Spanish as the enemy, capital T, capital E. They were an all-powerful empire. They possessed endless resources and men. They were a constant threat to the English and menaced over the entire New World. They saw Spain as Goliath and themselves as David. Or, more accurately, they saw Spain as a dragon. They saw them holding dominion over the people and terrorizing them. And they, the English, were there, much like their patron, St. George, to slay that dragon. There are pirates all throughout the golden age of piracy who, despite their villainous, barbarous ways and lust for treasure, never attack English ships. They refuse to turn against their countrymen, and still, despite their status as outlaws, focus their attacks mostly on Spain or whomever England may be at war with at the time. They were, on some level, proud to be English and proud of their Englishness and always wanted to support that. But St. George is more than just the patron saint of England. He's also the patron saint of Georgia, of Romania, of Malta, and of Portugal. And he is the patron saint of two Spanish kingdoms the kingdom of Aragon and Catalonia. In those provinces, the Spanish, who still celebrate St. George's Day, do so by gifting roses to the women and books to the men. Interestingly, the traditional book given to the men is either Don Quixote by Miguel Cervantes, who was one of the greatest literary minds in history and an icon of the Spanish, or the works of another European literary giant, William Shakespeare, an Englishman. Now, I'm not trying to argue that the pirates and the Spanish all of a sudden went through this tragedy and became friends, that they learned to love each other and live in harmony. No, they absolutely didn't. But next time we will, in the events following the battle, Witness things that I think show that both sides grew something close to empathy. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Today's episode will be released on International Podcast Day. It is an excellent time to introduce new people to your favorite podcasts. If there are podcasts you love from which you find value... I urge you to suggest those to your friends and family. If you have friends and family who don't listen to podcasts, I urge you to help them download a podcast player and find a show that you think they might be interested in. There are several podcasts which are bringing me a lot of enjoyment and inspiration these days. The first, the one I listen to without fail whenever it comes out, is There and Back Again by Point North Media. 
The host, Alistair Stevens, is a story expert who, on many different shows, analyzes story elements of some of our favorite pieces of literature and media. Everything from Harry Potter to Star Wars to the Marvel movies. There and Back Again is an analysis of the works of J.R.R. Tolkien. It is a fantastic show made by very smart people who have insight into these books that I had never pulled out myself. Second, nearly every day I listen to On Point with Tom Ashbrook. It's a show from NPR that discusses news and current events, but also sometimes delves deeply into particular topics. They've done a show on pirates and piracy. They've done shows on jazz, baseball, deer ticks, and deer tick season. Anything that is in the news or of interest at the time, they are willing to do an entire episode about, and it is just fantastic. And third, I am a very big fan of the History of English podcast with Kevin Stroud. I know I've mentioned that before, but if you haven't given it a listen, it's a history of the English language told through almost the lens of the history of England. It's a really fascinating and well-done history podcast, and I think you might enjoy it. I suggest you check it out. And also, a special shout-out to everybody who did analysis of Game of Thrones this season. It was all spectacular, with a particular note to my friends over at the History of Westeros podcast. If Game of Thrones is not your cup of tea, Sean and Aziz do another show called Fandom Media, talking about all sorts of other TV shows and fandom. Yours truly was featured on that show for their season finale of Black Sails. So I urge each and every one of you to take to Twitter or Reddit or Facebook or even the real world and tell your friends and family about all of the podcasts that you love. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you have not yet checked them out, I urge you to do so as well by going to brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.